Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke, one of your pastors at Parkview. And I want to welcome you to another episode of the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode is for the week of August 28th through September 3rd, Sunday, September 3rd, and refers to the preaching passage for September 3rd. So our goal each week is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders and future group leaders. That's right. Hit me up at Parkview to make disciples of Jesus. So this week we're learning from a whole bunch of Luke, Luke 1, 5 through 25, 57 through 80. It's a long chapter and 3, 1 through 22. Basically, it's all of the stuff related to John the Baptist. And then during our training segment, I want to review our vision for groups and uh, get us thinking again about what are we doing here. So a quick little announcement before we get into everything. So I mentioned last time that I would let you know about our community group kickoff event. Typically, we've held that at the end of August, but with a few moving pieces this year, wanted to move it back so we had time to fully prepare. So we have a date for that. It's Sunday, September 17th from 530 to 730 at Central Campus. So we get together, eat a meal, and um, spend time in our groups. So you'll sit with your group. We'll have childcare, we'll have food, all that stuff. And basically get to get to sort of reset our goals for what um, what's going to happen with our groups this year. Meaning let's, let's be honest with one another. Where do we need to grow? Where do we hope to grow individually and as a group? And, and uh, a little bit of time for me to get us all thinking in the right direction, planning in the right direction about what we're doing this year. So uh, leaders, the way we register for this is I have you RSVP for your groups. So if you're listening and you're a group member, please uh, remind your leaders as I'm doing now and will do via email to uh, register for your group so that you can be sure we can be sure that we have enough food and childcare for everyone that's coming. So uh, community group kickoff Sunday, September 17th, Sunday evening at Central Campus, 530 to seven. 30. And the reason we do that and the reason we're doing any of this is because community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. We'll review that at the end of this podcast. But first, let's talk about what's going on around Parkview. So a couple things to remind you of. We are excited about a full fall with a ton of amazing ministry opportunities. And we want to make sure you can stay informed about everything going on around Parkview. And so Devin and the communications team have created some handy ministry guides that will help you stay in the loop about all the things going on at Parkview. So you can get a digital copy of that fall ministry guide in the link in these this show notes. Um, or you can pick up a physical copy at either campus on a Sunday morning. So fall ministry guide, check it out. Secondly, uh, another way that you can keep up with different ministries at Parkview is with the Church Center app. So Church Center, if you look it up in the app store on your phone, application store, whether you have an iPhone or an Android, you can look that up and download it for free, and it will get you connected to Parkview. You just say, It'll ask you, it'll look up where you're, you're coming from and then ask you which church you're part of. You click on Parkview and get registered. It's super simple and has all kinds of helpful resources and tools. Uh, the way that you can uh, get connected and get connected with your group and with all the events going on at Parkview, do giving through that. There's all kinds of stuff you can use. 
Um, it helps our staff stay up to date with your contact and family information so we can care well for you. And especially right now, it'd be great if you could go on there and double check your information to make sure that we have accurate uh information about, for instance, your kids' ages, their grades, your address, your phone number, your email address, all those kinds of things. Often we need to send things out to people or, you know, communicate and say happy birthday or make sure people are in the right Sunday school class, all that kind of stuff. And it would be amazing if you could update all of that. So we will have a tutorial video that's linked in the show notes with this show. So you can click on that and check it out. Or you can contact Devin, uh, our communications director, D niece at parkviewchurch.org. Yes, it's funny because it sounds like Denise. Devin niece at parkviewchurch.org. D niece. Okay, having said all that, enough drum roll. Let's move on to this passage. All right, we're going to get guided through this guide segment on Luke 1, 5 through 25, comma, Luke 1, 57 through 80, comma, Luke... 3, 1 through 22. So I'm not going to say a whole ton about this passage because there's simply so much that I will need to read to you. Uh, each week, though, when we do this guide segment, of course, we're getting a big picture of the passage, hearing it in its entirety, navigating any speed bumps that could disrupt your discussion, and giving a couple places to land in application. Again, we're going for a three-course meal of Bible content. That is, we want to hear this the sermon passage and get a little bit of a appetizer through this podcast. Then we want the main course, which is the sermon. And then we want our group discussion uh, about that passage to be our dessert, where we are getting to all the sweet stuff, applying it to our lives and supporting one another through it. But having said all that, I'll drop a few comments as we go along, but uh, it'll be mostly me reading it because it's a lot of text. So here we go. Luke 1. If you want to follow along with me, get out your Bible, go for it. Otherwise, just listen in. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. I'll pause there. So we find out something about Zechariah and about Elizabeth. They are, uh, by all appearances, uh, quite a lovely couple uh, living there in the early days of uh, 0 to 20 AD um, in Jerusalem. And they, we find out that Zechariah is from the division of Abijah. We know about these divisions from historical records, that a division was com- composed of about 300 priests um, and they served in two one-week periods per year. So that's how that worked. They'd serve in the temple in Jerusalem and uh, then return home, so to speak. Um, but we find out yet they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Never had children when she was in her childbearing years, and now they are both advanced in years, which is one of the Bible's euphemisms um, for Elizabeth having entered uh, menopause and so forth. She is no longer in her childbearing years. So they're infertile due both to barrenness and old age. Now, this is sensitive, and it was then too. Um, There was shame attached to barrenness. It was stigmatized. Um, This was a different era, we have to remember. Um, But there was sort of moral stigma attached 
to barrenness as well because it was seen as um, not the not the fate that you would expect for a righteous person. And so by all by all means, although they have sort of the high status of being part of a priestly family, they are there's shame attached to this. We see this later when um, Elizabeth is rejoicing over the conception of John, and she says, "Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people." So clearly, she was the object of some scorn because of their lack of children. It's very sad. I'll continue on in verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I'll pause there. Now, it's lost on us how special this was for Zechariah. Um, To be selected by lot, like it says, to enter the temple and burn incense was a privilege that would only come to a priest once in a lifetime. Uh, the chance of you being selected was minimal, and once you served in that capacity once, you your name was taken out of the hat, and you would never get to do it again. And so this was an incredibly special privilege. It's something that happened each day at the temple, um, that one of the priests would go in, not into the most holy place, which was only entered on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. Uh, this is only in the holy place. So remember, there's sort of court of the Gentiles, then the holy place, and the most holy place. Um, and there's a temple courts in between where the Jewish people would come and all that stuff. So not in the most holy place, but in the holy place. If you go back and read in Exodus and um, uh, Leviticus, you can learn about the construction of the temple and what that all means. But this was an incredibly special moment for Zechariah. Wow, it's the pinnacle of his career. It's his biggest moment. He gets to go. Everyone's praying. He's going to go offer this incense to the Lord, and then he's going to come out and bless the people. That's why they're so confused when he doesn't come out later. But what a special moment. He's going to go in, pray, offer this incense, come out. He must be so excited. His heart is racing. He's just found out it's about to be the best day of his life, basically. And he goes in. So, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, this is a special moment in the history of Israel because since, remember, the book of uh, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. It's, the Old Testament, of course, is not completely chronological, but Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And what happened after that was about 400 years of silence. No prophetic voice, the word of the Lord, did not come to the prophets of Israel for 400 years until this moment to Zechariah in the temple as he's burning incense, telling Zechariah about his son that will be born to him. And how does Zechariah reply in this incredible moment? Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And we're about to find out this was a faithless response. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God which, by the way, pretty ironic considering that's what Zechariah thought he was doing. 
And so he says, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so uh, Zechariah has this, this curse basically placed upon him, which is his tongue showed his unbelief. He did not listen, and he showed his lack of, or he did not believe with his ears, and he spoke out his unbelief with his mouth. And so his tongue and his ears, we find, are cursed for nine months until the birth of John, and his actually until after that, until the circumcision of John, uh, he is unable to speak, and we find out later he's actually unable to hear. When they ask him what his name should be, they have to sign to him, which would mean they, they couldn't just talk to him, they had to sign to him. So he's deaf and mute for nine months, which must have been um, both terrible, uh, you can imagine, that must have been a real hardship, and yet at the same time, uh, a bit of a mercy, because it meant that uh, as long as he was experiencing that sort of curse, he knew that the Lord was actually keeping his promise to him, which is the very thing that he struggled to do, which was believe that the Lord was being real about his word. So anyway, verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So that's verses 5 through 25 of Luke 1. Now we're going to go ahead to Luke 1, 57 through 80, which describes the birth of John the Baptist and, and those events. So verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. I'll pause there for a moment. It, it's significant that uh, to know that in the ancient world, naming within families uh, almost always, and you can almost say as a rule, happened with family names. You would never name a kid something that wasn't someone's name in your family. Uh, you see this throughout throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, people being named, you know, Andrew bar Jonah, so-and-so bar whatever, bar meaning son of. Um, and, and so you were always named within the family structure. So for God to give a name to uh, Zechariah's son, who was, he was going to be this incredible, special figure in the, the course of history and name him without, you know, outside of the family naming, it, it sends a message that um, the, the, the special nature of this son will not come through human origin uh, or due to his family connections, but from something else. And so they said, uh, you know, none of your relatives is called this, and they end up calling him John, of course. John is a name that means God has given grace. Uh, which tells you a lot about what John would do and what his coming represented. Uh, but let me pick back up in verse 62. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. You can imagine the relief of that moment and all that it meant. Uh, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. 
And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's beautiful. Okay, fast forwarding again to Luke 3, 1 through 22. Again, we're sort of everywhere that is touching on John the Baptist in this. In this, uh, It's going to be a lot to preach, so I'm excited to hear how Mark does it. Um, so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and uh, Traconitis, and Licinius, uh, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, just pause there real quick. What in the world, Luke? <laughs> that is so many names. How many ways does he need to sort of indicate to us the timing of when the word came to John? Uh, it seems so strange to us, and and yet it's clear Luke is doing a couple things. First, we can come back to Luke 1, 1 through 4, this last week's sermon passage where he lays out how precise he wants to be with his orderly account, carefully ordered account of all that happened with Jesus. He's making sure we have all the facts that we need. And historically, we can look back and verify that there this, this was a known period in time when all of these rulers were involved, and that solidifies the historical reliability of this text. But more than that, I think Luke is also wanting to point out, well, you know how sometimes you're reading the Old Testament and it's like so-and-so became king and he was a bad king. (laughs) He did all the things that he shouldn't have done and then he died. And then there was another king and he was also bad. Well, every single name that that Luke just mentioned, it's bad dudes. It's bad dudes everywhere. Uh, All of them bad ones. And so there's, it's sort of Luke painting the picture of there's a storm cloud on the horizon as the word of God comes to John uh, in the wilderness. And so this is about 27 to 29 AD. That's the period where all of those people were in power, so to speak. We can date it pretty accurately. So continuing in verse three, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, That might seem like a difficult verse to sort of parse what that means, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Is John saying that being baptized, the baptism of repentance, achieved the forgiveness of sins? No. um, This is kind of notoriously difficult to translate, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Maybe a way that would be easier to explain would be a baptism of repentance which accompanied the forgiveness of sins. It's important to note that repentance does not merit God's forgiveness, um, but we are saved by grace alone. It's not our response that, you know, provokes 
God's grace, but rather grace is a free gift. So that's just an important note there, and it's clear uh, as we look further that that's, that's what's communicated. But he says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to him to be baptized by him and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, like I said, wow, got a lot of stuff going on here. And so there's, I want to give you a big idea, which is that God breaks the silence. After 400 years of prophetic silence, God breaks the silence, not only literally by prophesying to, um, to Zechariah about John, but also through John, the word of the Lord coming to John to proclaim good news to God's people. And through all those words that we just read, especially in Luke 3, God breaks the silence. And what must we do? Well, we must believe. Unlike Zechariah and unlike many in John's crowd, we must believe what has been spoken. So here's my some points of application, some thoughts for you. First, I want to re-up my encouragement for you uh, to read Luke. Sometime this week, set aside a little bit of time and read Luke cover to cover. Get the big picture view of Luke Spend some time in it. Um, treat it like you're reading a book, reading a novel, and just enjoy reading Luke. Um, but related to this passage, I want to say I want us to ask ourselves: How am I like Zechariah? Zechariah is close to the things of God. He's a priest. He has every reason to be a sound believer and to show belief in the good news that's delivered to him. And yet he doesn't. He um, he disbelieves. How am I like Zechariah? Where am I prone to that kind of disbelief, even though I ought to believe? And second, how am I like John's crowd? You heard what they said. You know, do, He says, do not um, think to say to yourselves, well, we are Abraham's children, because God can make uh, new children out of these stones if he wants to. That's what John says. That's my paraphrase. Um, 
But each of us has something like that, that we would look to in our status, our ethnicity, our effort, our performance, whatever it might be, that, that gives us assurance that God is not really given. Um, and rather than looking to Christ and his finished work, we tend to think, whether literally and spiritually or just in our day-to-day experience, that really assure us of our own sort of, our source of really our basically our self-esteem. Um, so a couple things to think about and an encouragement. Consider Luke, reading Luke cover to cover. But that's all for our guide segment. Like I said, normally we'd go a little deeper, but there's so much to get through uh, that we didn't have much. So hope that leads to some fruitful discussion this week. Spend some time preparing and thinking so you can bring something useful to group. But now we're going to move to our training segment. So if you are interested in becoming a leader, I hope so. Or if you are a leader yourself, tune in. Otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Now, what I want to do here is just briefly in five minutes or so, review our uh, vision for community groups. So uh, as we say each week, Parkview exists to glorify, or sorry, I said the wrong thing. I'll say that one though. Parkview exists to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples of Jesus Christ for the good of all people. And how we do that, one of the main ways we do that, especially for adults at Parkview, is through community groups. Um, And community groups is a bit of a broad umbrella because we're now having sort of a little bit more specialized groups, young adults group, young families group, a couple others, trying to make the most uh, best use of our sermons, uh, the great biblical sermons being uh, preached at Parkview, and of course the effort that we're putting into things like this podcast and group leader training and stuff like that um, to help a bunch of different kinds of people. So, Um, But how do we actually do that? How do we follow through on that mission? Community groups, of course, have we have our own mission statement that relates to that, which is that community groups make whole disciples through uh, by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. So what I, wanted, what I want to do is just remind you of what probably many of us already know, but we all need to be reminded from time to time, which is what those particular group values are and what, how they contribute to what actually goes on in a group and what, what makes that group really excellent and helps, it, helps us as a whole church ha, to do what we have been called to do. So let's start simply by um, talking about relational safety. Well, actually, no. Let's start by talking about growth. Now, starting at the end, right? Um, The relational safety and spiritual initiative, they serve a purpose, which is to produce growth. What Parkview needs most from community groups is for each and every member of that group to grow as a Christian. We truly believe that. What we need most is for more and more people to take a next step of growth with Jesus. A, A practically measurable viewable, visible step of repentance and faith in Christ. If community groups are strong and the members of groups are growing, our church will be strong and growing. Now, it it might seem like sort of a small thing for a group just to be faithful and helping each member in the sort of that patient process of growth in grace, but it is not. Uh, Growth of group members is what drives all of the other values of this ministry. It's what drives our choices about the structures of our groups. It's the final measure of our success in this ministry, to be honest. And, and it's, what I, it's what I will ask you about, leaders, when we check in. And it's what our training aims at, finally. Growth is everything because it's really Christ's heart for Parkview is for us to present our people mature in Christ. Um, that's what the, the book of Ephesians remind us. 
reminds us. So, um, uh, let's talk then about how we get there. How do people actually grow? Well, we talked about two things, two core values outside of the ultimate value of growth. Number one being relational safety. Um, relational safety is that first core value of groups. And, and the reason for that is because without relational safety, group members will not grow as Christians. I think I can say that's not an overstatement. But rather, to the degree that relational safety is an increasingly visible reality in your group, group members will have the freedom to be able to be honest and therefore to be able to grow. Um, We know that what God aims at is the heart. And if people aren't able to share what's really going on at the deepest levels, then they won't be able to be healed and changed at the deepest levels. Think back for a moment to the people who have wielded the greatest Christian influence in your life. I'm guessing for many of you who are group leaders or considering becoming group leaders that there's there's a good reason that you desire to be a leader because of those people's influence. Uh, certainly a great part of their impact because came because of the words that they spoke to you. You know, words of encouragement, words of correction, words of words of scripture, words of prayer meant so much to you. But I'm also guessing that what convinced you to listen to those people who, who wielded that spiritual impact in your life uh, was their patient, loving affirmation and support of you. The fact that they knew you knew that they were with you and they were for you, you weren't going to shock them away from you, you trusted them to keep your secrets and to keep their word, to not abandon you, You trusted them enough to share the places where you were genuinely struggling to follow Jesus. You knew that if you were honest with them about your flaws, that they wouldn't reject you. In in short, you felt relationally safe. You knew that if you were honest about your real flaws and scars, that it would lead to healing and not rejection. Or maybe you didn't experience that. Maybe you, and maybe you know how hard it is to grow without that fertile relational soil. Um, Without relational safety, your group members can only be theoretical sinners making theoretical confessions of sin about surface matters that really don't touch who they really are. If, If your group is full of lots of Bible study but little actual sharing about where they're struggling, this may be the problem. It may be a lack of relational safety. Um, and as we as we go on through this semester, we'll talk about how to actually fix this. But first, we got to know what we're talking about. But when someone knows that the people around them have that kind of patient, wise, non-judgmental affection for them, uh, they can finally unmask, finally be honest, unburden, and share the parts of their minds, their hearts, their souls that are in deepest need of change. Relational safety is the fertile soil of real, deep spiritual growth. Now, um, of course, a community group must be more than just a Bible study with a few perfunctory social moments on the side. Um, we must get down deep uh, into one another's lives. Uh, and we must, of course, we must challenge people as well. Imagine that you are a mining engineer who needs to blast through a hard face, a hard rock face in order to unearth the treasures that are beyond it. You might think that it's as simple as strapping a stick of dynamite onto the face of that rock and hitting the trigger, or more likely, it's the thing that looks like a bike pump. You know what I'm talking about? 
in uh, cartoons. Boom. But a detonation on the face of that rock will have basically no effect on the integrity of that rock, and all the treasures within would remain hidden. Actually, the first step that you need to take to unearth those treasures is to drill down deep into the surface of the rock face. Uh, and they, I've, I've seen this on the Discovery Channel, big, long drills, and the only purpose is to make a little three-inch hole that's super, you know, it's 40 feet deep, and they just put a bunch of dynamite down in there so that the explosion can take place deep within the rock and actually disrupt it to its core. Now, you can probably see what I'm getting at here. If we try to challenge people to grow at the deepest level without first cultivating an environment of relational safety, we will be like that foolish engineer strapping dynamite onto the face of the rock. Even with a powerful explosion, not much will happen. And so also, if we want to affect real change in the lives of our group members, and remember, that's what we ultimately want, growth in Christ, we must do the patient, gentle work of drilling deep channels of trust and affirmation and affection. That way, when we apply the true spiritual dynamite of God's word, it won't just be that glancing blow on the, on the surface of the rock face, but it can have its deep soul rearranging force. So often, the gentle words, the gentle question from the Bible that is asked by someone with deep trust will have so much more impact on someone than the harsh and firm rebuke of someone who doesn't have that kind of trust. You've experienced this. You know it's true. And so we must cultivate relational safety. Now, we must also cultivate spiritual initiative. We know that spiritual growth is, of course, ultimately the result of God's creative power and initiative. It's God who gives the growth. We see that in a passage like 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, uh, which says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, at the same time, the Bible affirms over and over and over again that God expects and intends for ordinary Christians like you, like me, to play an indispensable role in the spiritual growth of those around them. So the Bible affirms two things at the same time. All spiritual growth is ultimately down to God's creative power and initiative, but at the same time and without contradiction, the Bible makes clear that Christians like you and I are responsible, humanly speaking, for the spiritual growth of those around us. Um, maybe the most stunning depiction of this reality comes in Hebrews 12. In verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Sheesh! Of course, this passage is talking about the elders of a church, which should give serious spiritual sobriety to me and all of our leading men. But so also for each one of us, there is a sense in which we can really truly say along with the Bible, if, if my fellow group members are not growing in Christ, one of the questions I need to ask is, was there anything I could have done differently? And this goes not only for group leaders, for each, but for each group members. And in fact, for each church member, we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves spiritually. We belong to the Lord. And the Lord has given us to one another to encourage one another toward Christ. And, of course, group leaders listening, you are not the sole bearer of that kind of spiritual responsibility. It is the call of every Christian to live an other-oriented or, better yet, kingdom-centered 
life. However, someone has to go first. Someone has to set the pace. Someone has to just practically, I need to be able to turn to someone and say, are the people in your group growing? And what are we going to do about that? And not have everyone kind of look, you've been in this group, look around at one another and go, huh, yeah, who, who was, whose job was that? <laughs> we must consider, Hebrews 10, how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what we're doing. That's the heart of spiritual initiative. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go. But uh, you can hear there is clear order. There's clear God-given commands. There's clear uh, motivation for us to help one another take next steps forward so that we see real growth and we can actually do what God has called us to do, to become a whole church that is a church not only where each person knows they have a part to play, all of us, whole church, but also that each one of us is marked by radical wholeness and holiness where we are making and helping make whole disciples. You can't make whole disciples without yourself becoming holy to the Lord. So uh, having said all this, um, this is what groups are all about. This is what we're returning to time and time again as we uh, create an environment and cultivate that environment where people feel safe to be themselves. We apply spiritual initiative. We take one another's spiritual life seriously. I want these people to grow in Christ. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to know how they can grow. I'm going to ask some of the some of those questions. Some of them are so basic. Like, how do you think you need to grow in Christ right now? <laughs> so basic. And then I'm going to pray and I'm going to follow up and I'm going to see how's that going? How's that going? What do you think you need to do next to get there? And actually, God blesses that simple effort, um, that simple sacrifice to to give part of our hearts to one another to to create disciples of Jesus. So uh, this has been fun. Let's do it again next week. Remember, uh, there uh, those announcements. Take a look in the show notes about things that are going on, uh, and uh, we'll see you again next week. 